This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. In this episode, I talk to Kristen Peterson, author of the book Unruly Souls, The Digital Activism of Muslim and Christian Feminists. You'll learn more about her in a bit when we discuss her book that looks at the role social media has in challenging the still-dominant narratives of religion. Now, if you've listened to this show for a long while, you know that I'm aware of the pitfalls of exvangelical, post-evangelical, or deconstruction-oriented spaces online. I don't make any claim that they're perfect, but their function as a counterpublic remains critical in a culture where white Christian nationalism is ascendant and the amount of political and financial resources available to white evangelical institutions outstrip online upstarts by multiple orders of magnitude. That's what Kristen's book examines, and that's why these things matter. This podcast and my publication, The Post-Evangelical Post, are just one example. If you value my work, Please consider supporting it with a subscription to the Post Evangelical Post at postevangelicalpost.com. You can subscribe at four, six, or eight dollars a month, and I donate twenty-five percent of net revenue from subscriptions to the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and White Homework. The subscription will get you ad-free podcast feeds, exclusive writing, Discord access, and more. You can also subscribe for free, and you can rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. All right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Professor Kristen Peterson. She is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at Boston College and author of Unruly Souls, The Digital Activism of Muslim and Christian Feminists. Professor Peterson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for reaching out and for, for writing a very interesting book. I'm really excited to talk to you about it. How we usually start the show is just to learn a little bit about you as the guest, especially your exposure and exposure to and experience with, with religion. In your introduction, you mentioned that you're raised Catholic, but also exposed to some elements of evangelical purity culture. And it felt like that sentence was doing a lot of work. And I was hoping we could start <laughs> by sort of unpacking that and learning a little bit about <laughs> your own experiences in, in sort of religious spaces. And eventually we'll, we'll get to what drew you to this particular work. Yeah, great. So yes, yeah, so raised Catholic, still practicing Catholic. And I, but I went to public school growing up um, all the way through high school. I did go to a Catholic university. And so when I was in high school, my kind of intersection with evangelical purity culture, I would say, came about because I was involved with a youth group in high school. I think it's called Arise. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was a group where we would meet like before school and they would have like singing and preaching and things like that. And I was initially drawn to it because I enjoyed the music and found a connection to that. And then when I 
was, yeah. And so then when I was in college, was more involved in my Catholic faith and was definitely exposed to more of a, a social justice approach, approach to Catholicism. The university I went to was run by Dominican sisters and was really inspired by kind of their passion for social justice and bringing a lot of the these issues into the world, right? So I did a lot of like service projects and work in Chicago. I went to school outside of Chicago. But I also was exposed to purity culture in college. I had this unique experience where I had a friend who was Pentecostal and she had invited me one night to go to her church for like a service, a youth service. And it turned out that it was actually a, a purity culture event, right? So it was the pastor was giving a, a sermon all about purity culture. And I think it was, I don't know if it was true love weights. I remember we we had like a pledge that we signed that was something about being worth the weight. Mm, yeah, that sounds familiar. So it was, and I didn't really know that this was what I was getting into. So that was a really kind of formative experience in a lot of ways. I would say one is exposed me to this idea of purity culture, but two, it would expose me to a different experience of religion um, and experience of religious worship being more of the aesthetic worship, you know, speaking in tongues and things like that, that I was had not been experienced before. And that was really, in that moment, really, uh, really inspired me to like, learn more, you know, this is such a different experience than I've, that I've had of religion. So that was partly inspired my interest in doing more work with religious studies. But yeah, so that was one way that I intersected with purity culture was through the youth group in my high school through this experience in college. And then also I was given a purity ring at one point. And, you know, so I wasn't I wasn't so much inundated in the culture, but I had exposure to it. I would also say like going to a public high school. I mean, we got general sexual education, but there was still this kind of focus on like, don't have sex because you're going to get AIDS, you're going to die, you're going to, you know, all these things. Um, so it was a different approach, but it still was kind of this thing of like, sex was like this bad thing that you shouldn't be doing. So I carried a lot of that stuff with me and that did kind of inspire and form my connections in terms of the book. But yeah, so that's kind of my experience. And then, like I said, I, I was in terms of my own personal faith, I found this connection to kind of bringing social justice activism and this work for, you know, work among the marginalized work for equality in college, in, you know, the services and also in various, you know, service work justice projects that I was involved in. And then I did do a year of volunteering after college with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. So that also kind of influenced me in a lot of ways. So now I would say that I'm kind of to the point where I I really feel my faith is, I mean, obviously there's a lot of institutional concerns and with, with any religious institution, but I sort of center my faith on this idea of Jesus being among the marginalized, this work for justice, equality, um, this kind of radical love within the gospel message. That's where I would sort of position my my faith now. But yes, there's obviously going to be, with any institution, there's issues and concerns that are going to come up. Sure. That's that's very interesting. I have a couple of things that I want to tease out from what you mentioned. Sure. I actually just found some echoes in my own my own experience. Not I wasn't raised Catholic, but when I moved from small town Indiana to the suburbs of Chicago, that one of the parts of the sort of culture shift of that was just I there were a lot more Catholics, and I also went to a public school through K through twelve, and elected to go to a, a you know Christian college. But one of the things that was present in our youth group were, were a lot of Catholic kids that you know, our peers that would come to Protestant 
youth groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was just curious, was that, was that something that was an experience for you and a, a number of other folks that you knew that, that might've gone to mass on Sunday, but then on Wednesday would go to youth groups or things like that for those other types of religious connections. Cause I feel like that that's just this, this aspect of some areas that, it's an, another sort of entry point for evangelical influence. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think the issue is that Catholic Church, you know, still does struggle to how are we getting the youth involved? And and I think there's this idea that, well, like they're they're doing they're doing all this work with young people, the evangelicals. So, you know, it there's no harm, you know. And I feel like my parents felt that too. It was kind of like, well, there's no harm in these things because they're Christian, you know, it's, mm. it can't be that bad. And, and even I was just in um conversation with people at my current parish and they were talking about starting a youth group, which I think is excellent. But there was a discussion of like bringing in like a more non-denominational youth group. And, and I think partly it's just because there's so many resources, the Catholic faith. I mean, there's more and more being built up, but there's less resources that are centered in the Catholic tradition. So I do think there is you know, the evangelicals just have so much material to draw from. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I think there's just this assumption like, oh, there's no harm. But, you know, I mean, I do have memories of of people saying things that were very anti-Catholic, you know, saying Catholics weren't Christian. And my partner talked about, you know, his brother having an experience of like wearing a Notre Dame shirt to a to a youth group and people saying like, what's that? Like Notre Dame's like a terrible place, you know? So there is a lot of anti-Catholicism that still exists in those spaces, but I think you're right. I think there's just less resources. And so, and there's sort of an idea of like, well, there's no harm in, you know, sending kids to these other, you know, other spaces to kind of get more, you know, supplemental materials. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, that sort of speaks to institutions and and the availability of media right right and like like yes. they just have spent uh, uh over 100 years developing these media exactly no um, totally yeah there's a long tradition of that um mm-hmm. they've really sophisticated you know in terms of you know just look at like music is one example right just i mean so many catholic churches use you know evangelical music because it's just a lot better you know and widely available yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. The other aspect that that this is this is more me speaking out of my ignorance sure. is just a as far as like I'm I'm aware of the sort of the academic lineage or history of Jesuit colleges and things mm-hmm. like that. But I'm not as familiar with with those colleges that are that are founded by D- the B- Dominican oh, order. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a, a little curious about about what sort of things were emphasized at at those types of institutions. Sure. And um you also mentioned that that you also worked with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Um, but that that is certainly a you know a, a distinction that that if you again I'm I'm not a Catholic, so I don't yeah. have like I I have that sort of innate knowledge of what it what it means to be raised evangelical and Protestant, but I don't. <laughs> so this is me just being a little bit curious about how how those things begin to develop your your sense and orientation towards faith, especially uh, as you're going through adolescence and right, yeah, developing no. your own relation to these things. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. So there's different like order there's different orders within Catholicism and mostly those are founded by different figures. So you have like, you know, St. Ignatius is the one person who founded the Jesuits, right? Dominic founds the Dominicans, right? Francis, the Franciscans, right? So on. And so there's different 
they're kind of like different flavors, I guess you would say, or, and they have different focus on different, they call them charisms or different like special talents and gifts within those communities. And so there's around those different branches, you have different, you have priests and monks and nuns within those communities and sisters and brothers, and they're all different, but there's different just sort of focus and emphasis. So the Jesuits have a big focus on education is really important. So that's why you have so many Jesuit schools. Um, you have a focus on kind of discernment, vocation, those ideas. And and St. Ignatius really focused a lot on, you know, kind of this meditation and this idea of like daily examining your daily life and meditating on that. The Dominicans have a focus on preaching. They're called the the order of preachers. Hmm. And but preaching not necessarily just in terms of um, you know, speaking at church, but also in terms of like preaching with your life. So how you serve, how you do good good works in, in the world. And so there's Dominican sisters and Dominican friars and priests, friars being being priests. And and so the school I went to, which is Dominican University, they were run by sisters. Mm-hmm. So I think that has mm-hmm. an influence, <laughs> more mm-hmm. of a feminine influence. And really was a you know emphasis on, I would say, obviously education, but really this focus on two focuses on pursuing truth. So this focus on on education and seeking truth, but also on compassionate service. So kind of bringing those two things together. So there was a really big emphasis on that. And the other thing with the university, even now, is there's a huge emphasis on serving the marginalized. And so the school right now is considered a Hispanic serving institution. So it's like, I think about 70% Latino right now. And so there's a big emphasis on working with marginalized students, working with students who are undocumented. So that's a big, big focus, doing a lot of social justice projects. So yeah, so that would be, uh, I'm not sure if that exactly answers your question, but thinking about how there's different focuses, but there's an overall obvious idea of Catholicism. And then within, it's kind of like different approaches, different flavors. Are you more interested in education and and even some of the orders are only focused on you know monks that live in monasteries and pray all the time or is it focused on being in the world serving the poor is it focused on education is it focused on healthcare so there's different focus in that way thank you very much i i really appreciate that the extra detail just about cuz again this show is sort of narrowly focused uh, often on evangelicalism but there's there's such such variety to religious experience that that it's it's wonderful to hear those extra details. What drew you towards media studies as an area of focus? Um, your your book is about the the digital activism that mm-hmm. plays out on on social media. But even before we get to the book itself, what what was it about? media studies that that drew you I and part of me wants to make you know vague associations to that like McLuh- <laughs> McLuhan was a practicing <laughs> Catholic and things like that <laughs> however uh, I mean yeah. I, to me media studies is fascinating I, I love looking at it and I'm curious what what drew yeah. you to the topic it's it's very large and obviously um very significant in today's day and age yeah. Well, I can maybe answer it in two ways. One way would be just to say that I feel like it's a part of everyday life. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. live your life without media and it plays a huge role in how people understand their lives, make sense of the world, you know, the way that people, and I've just been in, you know, interested in that. I mean, how people engage with media as part of their daily lives and as part of their faith as well. And then maybe a longer, longer way or more pragmatic way was that 
I started off doing religious studies and I love religion. I love studying religion, but religious studies was not really the theoretical approach that I wanted to, how I wanted to think about think about it, if that makes sense. So I discovered that it was a lot of the conversations were more about, you know, what we're studying, what religion is, how we define religion. And I was more just wanting to like, look at, talk to people, look at what they're doing, look at how they're using media, how they're making meaning. And I wasn't so much interested in like sitting around and reading a lot of theoretical articles. So for me, I was just like, this isn't quite my jam. I'd like to go more into the media (laughs) studies approach Yeah, yeah. where I can actually like talk to people, look at what people are doing. Yeah. So that was more of like a practical thing. I was just like, this isn't quite exactly fits with my disposition, but I found media studies to be a field that I just felt really at home in. Right. So you, so to use the religious terms, you're more interested in like the praxis. Exactly. uh, Exactly. But, but you thought, but the, how you saw that as playing out through media because of so much of our life is right. And there is a field of lived religion, right? You know, and a lot of that comes out of more sociology, anthropology than religious studies. But there is definitely that aspect of religion, of religious yeah. studies. Yeah. 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 That's that's definitely fascinating. Uh just be in another life I may have pursued that same sort of track, but then similar to you, I I saw a number of friends trying to engage in religious studies, and it's a very small market. It's a very tough, exactly, academic yes. market to be in. <laughs> there is that aspect <laughs> as well. It's a very difficult market to be in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I mean, broadly speaking, the humanities. You know, there's a lot of speaking of media. There's a lot of commiseration on social media about, yes. Yes. about the overall humanities academic markets and the realities of that that mm-hmm. profession. What drew you sort of to as part of as part of essentially covering religious experience through media? What was it that drew you to the topic of sort of dissenting religious people? A term you use is unruly souls. In your book, certainly it 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 covers a number of different expressions of that. There's there are folks like like myself who are former evangelicals who use terms like exvangelical or deconstruction or what have you. Then you also talk about the Black Christian experience, which is very unique in America and has its own needs and and people that are exploring that what that what that entails as well as uh, as well as those in the Muslim community. So what so that's a that's a broad and I, I want to explore that in a little bit, but what do, what drew you to how these people that were sort of using social media to critique their own religious upbringing or the institutions they participated in. What drew you to that as a topic? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I've i always kind of been interested in people who kind of stand on the margins of religious identity. So I've always been interested in like people whose experiences are, you know, marginalized. Like I've done work on Black Muslims, converts to um, Islam. I've done work on, you know, interested in like newer religious movements and how they exist within the U.S. context. So I kind of had that interest. And then I started to notice these really fascinating projects. And what I was really drawn to was the fact that people weren't just, yes, like, obviously, there's a storyline of people, young people leaving religion. But what I was interested in, like, the people who are leaving, but are imagining religion and faith in a different way, or thinking about spirituality in a different way. And that that was really what I wanted to to look at was people who were Maybe they were leaving their religion. Maybe they were imagining something new, but how people were, you know, building up something new and weren't just simply tearing everything down, but kind of thinking about things differently and, and really just 
the ways that people within these two traditions that have very, um, as I say, kind of very traditional ideas around sexuality, gender roles, how people were trying to work within and pull from elements of the tradition and try to kind of bring back, resuscitate this focus on social justice and equality to build and create new ideas of these religions. So that rather than say, you know, oh, well, Christianity is so traditional or, you know, Islam is so restrictive, but thinking about like, how can we imagine this faith and celebrate the beauty and the the, the equality that's at the root of these traditions, kind of bring that back and and eliminate the problems that have been brought in by power and institution. But yeah, so that that would be kind of the main way of thinking about how these these individuals were were not trying to just completely leave religion and were kind of apathetic, but more how they were trying to create something new. Yeah, and I mean through my own work, that part of it has been just using the the fact that you're critiquing it means that you took it pretty damn seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's start by looking at the sort of the commonalities of these groups and then branch into what makes these different communities or there's the the media term counterpublic is sort of how I'm yeah, thinking about a sure. lot of these spaces, which uh, I believe it's, there was a book, Redeem All, that also talked about this. Um, yeah, yeah, in, in yeah. Terms. I know Corinna very well. Yeah. yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. She... It was that book that 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 I, I learned that counterpublic term from, which I think fits these these communities well. But let's let's start looking. What what were some of the commonalities that you found amongst these these Muslim and and Christian dissenting groups? And then what else? And then eventually we'll work towards what makes them distinct. But but what what did you see across the board? I think the critique of modesty purity culture would be kind of first and foremost, this focus on purity, modesty, piety for women, especially as a, as really kind of becoming kind of essential to maintaining the, the, the faith, to maintaining kind of the purity of the community. Mm-hmm. And so the pressure that gets put on certain individuals to adhere to those standards, but also the dismissal of those who are sort of deemed because of who they are, because of their skin color, their sexuality are sort of deemed as not pure at all. So I found that to be very similar and kind of the anxiety around that. So I talk about how there's similar kind of object lessons, you know, that women who have sex before marriage are like a dirty, you know, a dirty, a chewed up piece of gum or a flower with no petals. And within Islam, it's the same thing of like women who don't wear the hijab or like an uncovered lollipop with flies all around them, right? So this kind of way of sort of objectifying women and turning them into and kind of, you know, using these ideas of like disgust. So that's one of the main points that's very similar. And then talking about how within those communities, individuals talk about, well, even though you tell us like we have to be these perfect, pure, absolutely, you know, modest you know, be these perfect representations of the faith, but we're still facing harassment and abuse within these communities. So there's this like kind of hypocrisy there where it's like, you're kind of making us do this. And then in the end, end, when we're harassed and abused, we're still being blamed for that, right? So there is similar kind of conversations happening there. And then also just this, the abuse and harassment within these communities has kind of came kind of came to a head around the same time. So you had very similar movements around church too, mosque me too, that were happening at the same time. 
And then you obviously have issues of of homophobia that comes into play, kind of related to purity culture, and then issues of anti-blackness, I think specifically in terms of racism. So this idea that certain individuals are less holy because of their race, because of their skin color. And that's pretty similar in both contexts as well. So you have a lot of young people also who are, you know, coming of age, engaging with, you know, activist projects around Me Too, around Black Lives Matter, around gay rights, trans rights, and they're finding ways to bring those things into the context of their faith as well. And I also think there's just a lot of intersection. I get at a little bit in the conclusion about how young people, you know, are are very aware of the fact that there isn't just one issue, that there's this larger institutional structures that are creating these problems. So that, especially I think coming out of the Trump administration, so so issues of like targeting Muslim immigrants is not just an issue for Muslims, it's an issue for other people as well. So yeah, so that would be the main, those are the three kind of points of connection. But I think the purity culture is the key area that it builds on. And one of the ways that that you illuminate uh, a number of these things is by also talking, since it is media and it is social media uh, mm-hmm. and new media for, for I, I know they they don't seem that many of them don't seem that new anymore. But as far as how the various media media that that we use, we because I'm I'm just sort of staking my own my my participation in this space as both a participant and observer of them. Mm-hmm. Within these various media, how uh, how do the different platforms that are used, the different services, mm-hmm. whether it's a podcast like this versus a short form place like Twitter and Inst- or um, a visual place like Instagram, um, and now increasingly TikTok, which has just come out of nowhere to dominate the entire space, exactly, and just uh, just the space of a couple of years. How do how do these different platforms? shape and contribute to the types of conversations that are allowed there? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a bit of what I try to get at, because ultimately, I'm coming from a media studies perspective. So that's really what I wanted to focus on and foreground. And I think that's key. So if you're thinking of Twitter, what I look at in that chapter is I think about the role of text and textual Mm -hmm. spaces within the evangelical community and talk about how purity teachings are reinforced through these spaces, through books, I kiss dating goodbye in these texts, right? Mm-hmm. And looking at the space of Twitter is really this important space for them to counteract through text, right? To use the language of this culture to, as I talk about, to kind of to present a different ideas, different understandings of sexuality. So, and I think it's really powerful in a lot of the tweets how people really are using, talking about this deep shame, but then turning this around and really celebrating who they are and what they're created. And I I feel like it's an important kind of ritual space that they're doing this work. And then, so that's kind of thinking about the textual space and what that allows for and how, and also Twitter allows for the fact that you can have this larger conversation. So you can have a hashtag and you can follow that conversation. So a lot of people may not post to that, but may read and feel supported just through that process of following that conversation. So I think about the humor and the ability within text. And then with images, I think there's, you know, especially Instagram and the kind of influencer community, there's such a focus on beauty and this particular kind of visual aesthetic that gets promoted. And so I look in that chapter at how 
um, different women are kind of trying to counteract that dominant visual image of a pious Muslim woman, which is really focused on the image, right? Whereas in Christianity, there's a lot of these texts within within Islam, there's a real focus on this like perfect Muslim woman looks a certain way. And so I look at that in that chapter and think about, you know, Instagram is really the space of beauty and comfort. And so how the women try to really try to play into and meet the visual expectations of Instagram, because it's an algorithmic space, you can't just post ugly pictures, right? You have to post something that's going to work within the algorithm. And I think the women in the, in the case I'm looking at are pretty effective actually at playing with and playing by the rules, but allowing for different critiques to get, to get, to get into their work. And Can then, you elaborate? oh yeah, 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 I'm sure, sorry, sure. Before, before you move on to podcast, yeah. could mm-hmm. you elaborate on, on that sense of play? Cause you do, you do mention that throughout the, throughout your text of yeah. play being a, an element of, mm-hmm. of how people interact in digital spaces in particular. For sure. Yeah. I think that play and humor are really key to a lot of these projects. I think there's this idea that those who are marginalized in order to kind of get their voice heard, there's a certain sense that you have to kind of be creative, be playful about it, so that you can't just be sort of offering a critique, offering a counterpoint, and people are just going to turn you turn you away and say you're just, you know, you're just being, you know, you're just complaining and who cares? And and so I think there's a sense of like trying to, you know, bring forward a critique through humor, through playfulness as a way to kind of bring this idea forward and people might accept it and not quite always realize that this is is also very biting critique. So I'm jumping ahead, but I talk about this with um, the music video chapter where I talk about Mona Hader's work and how she's this hip hop artist and how in a lot of her work, like she has this one song called Dog, where it's very funny, but it's also extremely biting and critical of men who are abusive within Muslim community. So I think that's one way that it can be helpful. And I think there's just like this idea of like people kind of leaning into the labels and things that they've been assigned and sort of saying like, well, if you're going to say that I'm like, like, for example, going back to the images, one of the women is sort of a fat activist in terms of her posts that she does and her fashion. And so she's like saying, well, if you're going to say that I'm like fat and I take up too much space, then I'm going to do that. Like, I'm going to take up space. Like, I'm going to, you know, play into that. And so I think there's a, in a lot of these cases, there's this use of humor and play as a way for people who are sort of saying like, well, if you're going to say that I'm that, well, I'm going to be that and I'm going to show you how fabulous I am while doing that. Yeah. And you, you, you bring in, um, please help me with the, with the term that decolonial and the what is the what is the term the decolonial oh the mi- gaze. Mi- mimicry or yes yes yes, yes. exactly the sense of mimicry that because well decolonialism is very important for for people of color who who have been formed in a in a pre- predominantly white led religious spaces and also governments and and nations uh, but that that was such a that was also a very interesting piece of language that sort of speaks to what what can be done in these spaces. Exactly. Yeah. So that yeah, so that goes back to um again Mona Hader's work, another video she has called Barbarian, this idea that she starts the video off and says like if you're if you're civilized then I'd rather say savage. So this kind of idea of like, well, if if this is if this is what it means to be civilized, well, I don't want to be that. Like I don't mm-hmm. want 
you know, and so it's kind of this idea of saying like, well, if you're going to continue to say that I'm a barbarian, that I'm exotic, but I'm this orientalist, orient, orientalist stereotypes, then I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to celebrate that. And I'm going to do it by showing you that actually your civilization is, is not, you know, I'm going to point to the problems and the, and the hypocrisies within those spaces. So, yeah, so this is kind of the playfulness and some of these tactics that I'm looking at for sure. sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I did cut you off before we, I, I, I did, I'm sorry, okay. I, I, I didn't <laughs> mean to cut you off or lead you to, towards another space you were also going to talk about um, uh, podcasts and how Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They... So, yeah, so I, and I was kind of going on and it's probably getting a bit boring, but yes, podcast, so for, po- <laughs> for the podcast chapter, and this is one that, you know, I'd love to chat with you more about, but to think about how podcasts are this really unique medium because they allow for these long conversations, right? So if you're thinking about faith, you're moving beyond sort of like, okay, this is the doctrine, but you're sort of having the space of like, let's talk and let's dialogue and let's think about what what faith is, what it can be. And so in that chapter, I talk about exvangelical and some other emerging podcast among you know evangelicals, former evangelicals. And then I look at Truth's Table podcast, which is um, which is hosted by three Black Christian women, and they to just really fascinating work to focus on and really focus on the theology and to really kind of rebuild a sense of Christianity that centers on black, black Christian women's experiences. And so thinking about how that, that could only really happen within this podcast space, because you have to have the space where there's a lot of time, openness, and this kind of safe community that can be created in that space. So that's the podcasting chapter. And then the last one I talked a bit is thinking about music videos. And I also kind of think about like hip hop as a medium and how there's like this layering that's possible within hip hop music and specifically looking at Muslim American experience and how for a lot of individuals, they're kind of exist in this third culture where they're kind of in between. And so how the ability to kind of play and layer and layer style and lyrics and music within these videos is a way for them to basically express this kind of in-betweenness and sort of say, especially for Muslim Americans, there's this sense that they are really kind of caught between these binaries of like, you have to always be kind of proving that you're a good Muslim. And so for a lot of these individuals, they're kind of like, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> like I just want to be who I am right. and create material for my for myself, for my community, and not be responding to this pressure that I have to be a certain, you know, a certain thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm s- certain that that is a very, very difficult burden to be under, especially mm-hmm. like we're 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 a bit removed from it now just chronologically, but the those post 9-11 years were very anti-muslim and that that trauma doesn't go away um, yeah it and just doesn't and go the, away e- e- yeah yeah and there's a generational thing too going on here because mm-hmm. a lot of these individuals were maybe even born you know really post 9-11 or before around that same time and so their experience is very different and their their parents generation most likely was like well we have to be responding being a good muslim all these things there's nothing wrong with that, but I think a lot of the younger people are sort of like, we're done doing that, you know? And you can look yeah. at the media representation and you can see like a, a movement from first you have like sort of the good Muslim who's like helping the like 
FBI and CIA on Homeland or something, right? And then you have kind of like, oh, the Muslim character in a sitcom or something. And now you have things like Rami, which, and um, We Are Lady Parts, and some of these really great representations that are just like about young people who happen to be Muslim who are dealing Mm -hmm. with their lives. And Islam is a part of their identity, but it's just one part of who they are. And it's not responding to terrorist tropes and these things. Yeah. And with your focus on on video, with regard to music videos, I think that sort of parlays into this space we're in now where TikTok and now Instagram is trying to mimic TikTok and <laughs> and um and get that same sort of level of engagement and stickiness to use their uh, you know, the the uh, industry terms for for just how how persistent people will use it. I mean, it's certainly a very engaging platform, TikTok. But with that space, like, and with the emergence of video that can incorporate text, can incorporate mm-hmm, green mm-hmm. screens, like a mm-hmm. number of these things that are very easy to bring bring multimedia production down to a very, very accessible level. How do you see that sort of just just sort of pontificating or, or thinking about the future of these these sorts of spaces. And uh, and before, uh, like for me, my my one comment to my own question is that <laughs> it's been very interesting to see see a hashtag like exvangelical jump yeah. from platform to platform. Yeah, and that's true. Exvangelical now has a billion impressions on on TikTok, and ex Mormon has five billion, and like <sighs> you know, like all of these crazy or just wild numbers. And I'm just curious as a a person who studies this in the academic field, where do you see this shift from from text to to still photos to video? What is your impression about how the sort sense of play or however we're mm-hmm. sort of relating to these things? What are your thoughts about the way it sort of seems yeah. to be going right now? No, it's a great question. So this semester, I'm teaching a class, Religious Expression in the Digital Age, and I haven't taught it since before the pandemic. And it's so fascinating because my students are doing case studies, and they're almost all doing something on TikTok. It's Mm -hmm. all different, though. And there's all these spaces that I'm like completely unaware of on TikTok. Like you're talking about the ex-Mormon movement. There's a there's a lot of like Orthodox Jewish influencers on there. Another student is working on ex Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. So much of this, right? And so it's it's become a space where my students are like exposed to all of these different religious experiences that they were unexposed to before. So that's fascinating because it's popping up on their page. I think there's a, quite a few things going on, and I mean, I think one thing is the like you mentioned the kind of layering and the playfulness and the ability for people to access these spaces and to you know comment on other things right it's very it's kind of like this is a word mememic right sort of like a meme right this idea mm-hmm. that you can kind of always be sort of building on the work of others i think there's a lot of potential in that in terms of critique and like you said the accessibility that people are able to to do this work and then the algorithm is the other thing because it's like like I was saying, you know, four years ago, my students would not know a single thing, I'm sure, about ex-Mormons and ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and Orthodox Jewish women, because where would they be getting this material from? They wouldn't be getting it, right? You'd have to seek that out. And so now, because of the algorithms, people are being exposed to this. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's it's helping these ideas to spread more. It's interesting mm-hmm. that it's almost all ex 
whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure I mean, what's going on with that. Yeah, um, I, yeah. the only ones that I've seen that on on uh, TikTok in particular, I see things like progressive clergy as a hashtag, or sometimes deconstruction. Like that's just mm-hmm. sort of become this catch-all term. And and there's a, certainly a lot of dialogue and sort of counter dialogue mm-hmm. <laughs> because evangelicals will use the term deconstruction to vilify people uh-huh. <laughs> that deconstruct uh-huh. them. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You know, it's sort of there's it's it's this point of contention between right, right. two very different publics that, right. that they never actually talk; they just talk about each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so so then I think it's like it's it's obviously an important space. There's obviously people out there who need to get these ideas out and need to express themselves in this way and in relationship to religion. So there's uh, there's clearly a need for this. But then I guess the only thing I mean there's a few concerns I have. I mean, one I feel like it's so ephemeral that it's like people see these things and it's like does it really have what does it do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, how much of an effect does it have? Because it's an algorithm, you know, I mean, this is another issue we've been dealing with is like, well, who's seeing this, right? You know, where's it going? Who's determining this, right? Is it that these stories are spreading more because they're more extreme or more emotional? Is that why the X things are spreading? Because there's obvious, like people have like a fascination with religious extremism, you know, that could be it too. But I do just, and then I wonder, wonder, like, what will be the offline effect of these movements? Like, is this going to, like, are these former movements going to have the effect of something like Exvangelical, right? That was created through Facebook, right? Through Facebook group? Well, I the I started a, a Facebook group initially as like a Patreon mm-hmm. yeah. benefit and then ended up opening it up in, in uh, 2017. But I started the podcast in June of 2016. Yeah. Or July, July rather. I it was to mm-hmm. coincide with the 2016 Republican National Convention. So that's when I started. And then by the fall, I had been used, started to use the hashtag, and then it started to become more popular first on Twitter, and that's, uh, and then it sort of gained steam and became more more of a colloquialism or, or yeah. what, what have you. Um, right. But I mean, some people there's not even agreement around terms, just like in right. Just like in again, speaking to the X element of this, where mm-hmm. we we carry these things forward, like Protestants, you know, they split all the time. They have all sorts of they have all sorts of permutations, and so some people mm-hmm. don't like ex evangelical or say ex evangelical or post evangelical. I mean, my own newsletter is called the Post Evangelical Post because I, again, I'm just embracing the the punniness of it all, the all playfulness my, of it of it. Yeah, exactly. All my all my ideas start start as puns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Because I'm I'm a language person, not an image mm-hmm. person, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so th- so that so I guess my question is, and we don't know, but I just wonder, like, is there going to be this larger conversation happening around these movements, or are they just going to be existing in this one space, and will they be sort of forgotten in a day or two? You know, potentially they may be right, and so that's I guess that's kind of my question of like, clearly this seems to be something that people are desiring and need to use to express themselves. But how will this, what's kind of the next step in these yeah. spaces? Yeah. yeah, That's very much what I'm exploring as I work on my own book. Cause I think visibility, visibility is the first has mm-hmm. been sort of the first step that people have been, people have left evangelicalism for decades. It's just now there's more visibility to it, but speaking with regard to institutions, institutions 
are resilient and retain a lot of power. And so even though people expect, you know, the number of Christians in America to collapse, there's a, you know, a recent Pew study that just came out about that, that they expect Christians will no longer be the majority in America within 50 years. That's a significant change, but we'll see how that actually changes the institutions. And No, you're exactly right. Yeah. And whether we can create alternate institutions, whether right. we can agree enough on something to create something mm-hmm. that resembles an institution or or a radical realignment of society. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I'm sorry, I'm leaving some space because I felt like we were we were talking over oh, a little bit and I wanted you well, to Well, no, I was I just was I was just thinking of the fact we were talking about institutions don't disappear. And I was just thinking of like there's a lot of religious movements that have very few members remaining, but still exist as institutions. Uh, like I was just thinking like Christian science, for example, or Scientology, like some of these religious institutions have even like less than a million members and they still are like powerful <laughs> institutions in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when when you become an institution, it, it takes on its own life in a lot of ways. And I, to your point of the ephemerality of these mm-hmm. these spaces, the fact that it is related through media, often you know, unfollowing somebody or leaving a Facebook group is is a less there. There's less friction there than there is mm-hmm. to lose your entire social support network. And I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of oversaturation. I remember someone I knew that participated in these spaces for a while, and then you know their attention was drawn elsewhere. When they joined another another service like TikTok, somehow they started getting served <laughs> this this content again. It's like there was no social graph that came over, you know. So how did this happen? <laughs> they just knew the <laughs> algorithms. <laughs> the algorithms, those all-seeing eyes. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's such an, a fascinating space, and it's so it's it's great to to know that there are people, media studies people, exploring these things um, with sincerity and interest, um, mm-hmm. because clearly it's it's been valuable and and meaningful for me to participate and and help you know share these conversations mm-hmm. like this, but to know that there are people who are observing it and and trying to learn what's what's happening is also to me and encouraging especially for the ones uh, i i know that there are folks that have other relate relationships to these spaces but most of them that i many of them that i participate participate in mm-hmm. are default public twitter's mm-hmm. default public mm-hmm. podcasts you're obviously publishing something so to see this critical attention is is valuable is it when you when you study these things, is it, do you have both quantitative and qualitative methods? Like what mm-hmm. what sort of tools are are brought to bear? Um, yeah, there's some things? definitely some methodological challenges. I would say to studying these spaces. I mean, mostly just the the quantity of of material can be difficult. I'm more of a qualitative scholar, so I don't do a lot of you know any statistical analysis of these spaces. I'm more interested in talking with people and looking at and looking at the content, but there's definitely challenges because you have a lot of content. So like Mm -hmm. actually studying podcasts is really a challenge because there's so much content out there, right? So you're listening Mm. to hours and hours and hours (laughs) of content. And, and I also feel like when you study podcasts, you have to really, it's not just listening to the content. It's actually like, 
sort of seeping yourself into the culture that's part of the show. So for example, like just like listening to Truth's Table, like I could just listen to it and write everything down, but you really have to get a sense of like the personality of each of the people that host the show and the types of things that they talk about and their dynamic with each other. So I just think that's a key part of podcasts as well, that you can't just, like I said, you can't just listen or you can't just write, you know, get a transcript of, of the episodes. So there, there's a lot. That's a really challenge to study um, because you, yeah, I did, a, I did an article where I looked at different podcasts that talked about grief. Mm. And so I was just listening to like one episode of each podcast. And it's hard to do that because then you're not getting the sense of like the overall focus of the show right? And what the show does. So I was able to a bit, cause like I did talked about the liturgist and I've listened to that one. And I talked about WTF and I listened to that too, but for some of them, I was just kind of going blind. Cause I was like, I don't have time to listen to an entire podcast, you know, mm-hmm. all their episodes. So that's a challenge. Studying Twitter is a challenge because there's so much content as well. There's different tools you can use, but yeah. So looking at images and videos, I enjoy that. I, I'm more of a visual type of person. So I like kind of analyzing those spaces. But yes, you definitely get into the struggle of like how you study when you have so much content, how you study when things are ephemeral, like with TikTok, with Instagram stories, you know, so much is on Instagram stories now, but it's really hard to study those. You have to literally every day be going on there and taking screenshots. It's a lot to manage. And then there's also the the privacy issues, I think, like you were mentioning, it is public, but you also don't really want to be like this weird stalker who's like writing all this stuff. About right. People, yeah. Yeah. You know? And also you want to protect people's sense of, even though they're posting in a public space, like for the Twitter discussions, I don't think people are posting on these spaces and they want this to be written about, you know, 10 years from now or whatever. So I try to with that chapter, I adjusted people's language so you couldn't like search exactly and find who wrote what mm-hmm. tweets, except right. for the people that were kind of the leaders in the movement and people I talked to. But I feel like that's important just because you wrote something like once, like several years ago on a Twitter thread. Is it something that you really want everybody to know you did and what you said? I think it's more the essence of what people are saying is what matters. So there's those issues as well. But I think the main issue for me is just the amount of content um, Yeah, can be a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is, it's surprising and it's um, just, it is an in- incredible amount. And it seems that, you know, having, I feel like an old hand, even though I've only been doing this for six years and I, but then at the same time, I think of uh, folks who've been in similar spaces. Yeah for 20 years, you know, and mm-hmm. one must, what must they think of, of us as upstarts, you know, yeah, like, exactly. Um, and, but, but people continue to use these platforms in order to explore how they relate to faith and how those things change over time. And it, the p- participatory culture, I think is the other, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the term for those things and the way in which per- people participate either long-term or for, for a season. It's it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm thankful that there are books like yours out there that are examining these things, and again taking them taking them seriously, and and to the degree of care that you put into how how you sourced things, and it's it's very it's very fascinating, and I 
And again, I know that you mentioned the you mentioned this show in the book, and I feel uh, like <laughs> almost like it's a little self serving or like a you know a little. But I'm I'm re- I've been really happy to to talk about these things with you and dive in a little bit to to what you what you covered. Is there any other sort of area of before we close out? I, I know mm-hmm. we sort of talked about the the way these platforms are changing as far as you know, more of an emphasis on video through through mm-hmm. the influence of TikTok. Looking more at the way in which you see the content that people are making, do you foresee any other sort of changes in these spaces or in other unrelated spaces happening right now that mm-hmm. they, that you think are are going to be worth keeping a close eye on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right that there's more of a shift to the ephemeral nature of TikTok and and turning Instagram more into that, right? More algorithmic. I think that's the key shift is is more shifting to more algorithms and people are less seeking out specific communities and they're kind of being receiving the content. Because if you look at like the purity culture chapter, that happened in 2016. So that was a while ago. So I think there's less of a need for those specific communities that people are seeking and more away, moving away from textual spaces. But then I think there's still a desire for longer form discussions. So while you have kind of the ephemeral algorithmic spaces, I think people are still seeking out the podcast spaces, video spaces still. I mean, we didn't talk a lot about YouTube, but still having those um, mm-hmm. those spaces as well. And yeah, I mean, I've, like I said, I think those as we talked about already, the way that TikTok has become kind of the space for all this like X, X, Y, and Z yeah. <laughs> stuff um, <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. is quite interesting. And, but also there's a lot of like stuff on like Bible readings and interpretations and more traditional stuff as well. So yes, I think it's moving more in that direction. The other thing that I've grown more interested in is the Alongside, you have these kind of critiques of institutional religions. You also have a growing focus on spiritual, spiritual but not religious stuff. So a lot of stuff with wellness culture and you know new age things. I think that stuff's quite fascinating because it's kind of perennial. It sort of comes back. You know, my students will talk about manifesting, and I'm like, and they really will. Like in class, they'll say something about how you have to like. Like somebody in my social media class said something about how you have to like manifest who you want to be on social media and like in your profile in order to become that. And I was like, wow, that is really, you know, and and she said this like completely seriously. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating, you know, and, and this language goes back to like Mary Baker Eddy in like the 1800s (laughs) of like manifesting. So these ideas are like not new, but they Mm -hmm. keep coming back. Right. So that part I'm quite interested in like these and specifically a lot of women are involved in these spaces. So I've grown interested in that, like how these women are kind of claiming authority through Mm. playing into these ideas of like new age, astrology, wellness, culture, this kind of new thought, prosperity kind of ideas. Yeah. So that's, that's a bit of, there's some things that I see, but I don't know. I'm a little bit down on TikTok in some ways. I find it so overwhelming to me, but I think there's kind of two sides. You have this like fast-paced ephemeral disappears 
And then you have the slowness of podcasts and long mm-hmm. videos and things like that. So it's a fascinating time to be in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, maybe it's a product of my age or or <laughs> just burning out of certain things, but I, I find myself, yes, I'm going to write a newsletter. I'm going to, <laughs> yes, the newsletter things. A, That's the other thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have a, <laughs> a, I know. a long conversation with someone that I get to share and then pe- we can talk about that as an artifact <laughs> in and of itself. Exactly. Like, no, I was but, telling my students the other day, I really honestly find the way that TikTok loops to be very like jarring. And I find the the way that the sound is always so imbalanced. I find that very, uh, like all of it, I just find very, like, it just is very jarring. And I can't, I can't spend much time on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's (laughs) definitely, it is sort of a, a learning, a learning curve or just like, (laughs) um, just a exposure type more than almost more than anything else. Like I, a lot of times I find Instagram to be that way too, because for me, it's the, it's the scrolling down versus scrolling across yeah. with the with the stories and you know i'm just i'm not a very adept instagram user but but tiktok is sort of i've forced myself to learn just out of curiosity and mm-hmm. um yeah all those things that you said are are true like every video is different and you don't know what you're going to get and it's complete lottery mm-hmm. so and the the content is endless. So it's, <laughs> it's hard to know what you're going to get when you, when you open that app, but it does seem to be where the, the zeitgeist is at least, mm-hmm. at least for now. Um, exactly. <laughs> well, Kristen, it's been wonderful to, to talk to you about, about your book and about your experiences. Where can people find the book? Uh, sure. Where can they find you on any of these platforms? Yeah. So the book is available I mean, it's available everywhere, but if you want to get it through the press, it's Rutgers University Press, Unruly Souls. And I mean, it's on all the other platforms you can get books. And um, I have a website, which is my name, Kristen M. Peterson. I also am on Twitter at Chrissy PD. So K-R-I-S-S-Y-P-E-T-E-Y. And um, yeah, so feel free to follow me, say hello. And um, yeah, thank you, Blake, so much for this. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions and reading through the book so carefully and it's been a really fun conversation. Likewise, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great.